0: I think the fiat system, the traditional fiat system, Keynesian economics, etc., is the volatile thing, right? Because it it swings with the tides and politics and emotions. And Bitcoin doesn't. It literally just keeps confirming, uh, you know, new transactions approximately every 10 minutes. It just it propagates its monetary policy in a, a objective, unbiased way using math and code. And, and so because of that, you could just sort of draw a line using Metcalf's law, right? You just keep adding nodes to the network and you see the value go exponential. And so on a point-to-point basis, there's no reason why you shouldn't be able to compound your money in fiat terms, right? Uh, at 30, 40, 50, 60% annualized over the next couple of decades, because the market size of Bitcoin is probably the largest uh, market size, right? right? They call it TAM, total addressable market in human history you can sort of build a model of 30, 40, 50% annualized returns for two decades, but with no execution risk.
1: This is the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast, a show where average Joe firefighters explore the most important monetary technology of the 21st century. We talk Bitcoin, we talk finance, and we talk shit. Welcome, everyone, for another chat on the Blue Collar Bitcoin podcast. This week, Josh and myself, Dan, sat down with value-oriented investor and entrepreneur Mr. Mike Alfred. Mike has founded and sold two successful tech companies. He was the co-founder and CEO of Brightscope, which he sold in 2016, and he was co-founder and CEO of Digital Assets Data, which Nidig acquired in 2020. He's been a seed investor in a variety of successful Bitcoin projects, And he currently serves as an advisor or on the board of a number of companies, including publicly traded Bitcoin miner Iris Energy. We benefited a lot from this discussion. Mike is incredibly articulate, well-rounded, and original in thought. The three of us cover a variety of subjects, including investing in Bitcoin mining, Bitcoin as the best value investment of all time, the risks of giving up your private keys and seeking yield on your Bitcoin, gaining BTC exposure in traditional retirement accounts, the insanity of used car prices, and how to hodl your Bitcoin like a freaking professional. You can follow Mike on Twitter, at MikeAlfred, and you can follow us on Twitter, where we're probably more active than we should be, at Blue underscore Collar BTC. As always, we are enthused to announce that Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast is powered by CoinKite, makers of the cold card, the block clock, the open dime, and a bunch of other cool shit including the sats card, the tap signer, and dope honey badger hats. If you're interested in sleeping like a brown-throated three-toed sloth with your Bitcoin secured behind military-grade Bitcoin security hardware fit for generational storage and protection, folks, put away the sleeping aids, because the cold card is your answer. The two of us used this device long before this partnership, and we can attest it's fit for the cold storage newbie all the way up to sophisticated users. If you are someone that needs help with cold storage or doesn't even know what cold storage means... Shoot us a DM. We're glad to steer you in the right direction. You can access all CoinKite products at CoinKite.com, and be sure to use promo code BCB for 5% off all cold card purchases. I want to make one more comment before we get into this episode. A lot is going on in the world right now. On this show, we tend to approach geopolitical subjects with a matter-of-fact tone, an almost chess game-like perspective. Now, this likely goes without saying, but it is worth reiterating Our hearts break for and go out to all of those involved in present conflicts. War is egregious for all participating parties. The world is in a precarious place right now, folks. The two of us are passionate about pursuing ideas and supporting projects that we feel have potential to move humanity forward in both prosperity and cooperation. Bitcoin is far more for us than just a shiny investment. In our humble and very limited opinion, the Bitcoin protocol and network has the potential to rewrite a global system of perverse and unproductive incentives. Bitcoin certainly doesn't fix everything, but it's a massive step forward in human cooperation. At the end of the day, history shows us that fair and equitable intentions are not enough. Mankind is in desperate need of fair, equitable, and inviolable incentives. All right, without further ado, enjoy this chat with Mike Alfred. All views and language expressed by the hosts and guests in this podcast are solely their personal opinions and do not reflect their employers or organizations they are associated with. Do not treat any of the content in this podcast as investment advice or as an inducement to follow a particular strategy. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Mike, welcome on BCB. How are you? Good, guys. Thank you so much for having me. We're excited to get into this. There's a ton going on, an enormous amount we could cover. Let's uh, introduce you to our audience, though. Tell people a little bit about yourself, your business background, and then we can parlay that into how you discovered Bitcoin.
0: Sure. Yeah. So uh, I started my career after graduating from Stanford. I was a history major. In uh, 2003, I graduated, but actually I started trading stocks in the late 90s, believe it or not, with a custodial account that my uh, mother set up for me. So I could take my cut code knife. Uh, sales commissions and invest them in the stock market. I didn't want to buy a car or a computer. I just wanted to buy stocks. Like,
1: I have a brother that sold knives for Cutco.
0: It was a beautiful... I, was, I think I was like 30th in the country in the summer of 98 or 99. So I, I made like $14,000 in like seven weeks. What was the take on that? What percentage did you get? It, it goes up, right? So it starts at like 10% or 15%. But then when you get to a certain level of sales, like 20 or 30,000 goes to close to 50%. So if you have a thousand dollar sales day. You're making five hundred bucks as a seventeen year old kid, and I was a saver. My mom's a, a piggy bank style saver. Uh, I never like to spend money. I always like to see the money in the bank account. I would do the little pennies and the quarters and the little roll and take them to the bank. And the bank teller would tell you, "You got ten dollars in your account." Now I love that shit, right? If I'm allowed to curse on the blue collar podcast, but uh, you, absolutely. you are full license. Okay, good. I won't. Do, I won't do it often,
2: but <laughs> we encourage it as often as possible, Mike. Okay. Right. Less often is more impactful. So keep that in mind.
0: (laughs) You guys are hilarious. Uh, Yeah. So so uh, thankfully I discovered investing uh, early on, and and so I was trading stocks in my dorm room when I graduated. I became a financial advisor, literally working with grandmas on their financial plans. Right. Like driving out to their house and saying, "Hey, you're going to run out of money in 12 years. You know, you really need to buy an annuity, or you really need to cut down your expenses, or you need to buy some long term care because you're going to need it, etc." which I hated, right? Uh, but I had, to, I had to do something, right? I graduated and I had to go to work. Uh, thankfully, I discovered that I was an entrepreneur and I started a software company in 2008 called Brightscope. And the vision for that was just to bring transparency to the US retirement plan market. So at that time, if you worked for like Microsoft or Amgen and you wanted to know how good your 401k plan was, there was no way to figure that out on the internet. You could do a search, how good is my 401k plan at Microsoft? And literally there was no data. Um, so, my brother and I founded that company. We went to Washington, D.C. We convinced the Department of Labor to release uh, audited financial statements that were actually on file with them, but had never really been released to the public. And we created a rating system. So, we scored every retirement, large retirement plan in America from the zero to 100 score. And the goal and the idea was that if we could convince employers that it mattered how good their plan was, that they would actually be incentivized to make those plans better uh, for the end participants. And so, as, as you guys know, like the average person, Um, Their primary savings vehicle is their 401k and their house, Mm -hmm. right? And so this is very important for blue collar, middle class people. Wealthy people generally don't care because oftentimes they don't even have jobs, right? They don't have W2 income. They're not saving in a 401k plan. And so it gets overlooked, right? The CEO doesn't care that much. But the HR person signs up with Mercer or signs up with Towers, you know, uh, Watson, whatever. Right? They they sign up with Fidelity for a plan and they just stuff it full of overpriced mutual funds. And I just thought that was wrong. I thought that people <laughs> deserve better than that. Uh, so that was that was the vision. We built that company up over eight years, got it over to ten million in revenue, sold it for a little bit over thirty million. I only raised about five million of outside capital for that business. So it was a good outcome. Uh, for me it allowed allowed me to think about what I wanted to do next. And so started a crypto data business, believe it or not, to help hedge funds analyze Bitcoin and Ethereum and some of these other uh, digital assets that were coming up. And so got to work with all the big guys, you know, Paradigm and Polychain and Pantera and CMT and Jump and a lot of these big trading firms in Chicago, right? The the hedge funds in New York, uh, the the crypto traders in, in San Francisco, et cetera. Uh, and just got me more interested in Bitcoin. I said, huh, I own a little bit of Bitcoin, but maybe I should own a lot more. Uh, and so it was kind of part of this process of, of getting closer and closer to uh, you know, becoming a Bitcoin maxi of sorts. Uh, sold that company to Nydig in November of 2020. Briefly worked for Nydig as head of strategy at M&A. Actually did like 10 or 12 deals really, really quickly and built up their mining uh, business from scratch, right? like There was zero exposure to mining across the firm on January 4th. Of last year. Now they're one of the biggest players in, in lending against mining machines and equipment. Um, so learn the mining space. As you guys know, I, I spent a lot of time on that. And the reason was, is I talked to like 50 industrial scale mining teams, founding teams and CEOs over the course of six months because I was working like 16 hour days at NIDIG. Uh So left there in June of last year. And then since then, over the last kind of call it nine months, I've just been investing my own capital and using Twitter for the first time. Right, I had about 5,000 followers on Twitter when I left Nidig. Uh, last June, and, and now I have whatever it is, 76,000. And I think it's mostly just from speaking my mind. I mean, I have a fair share of enemies, as you guys see on Twitter, but I think <laughs> a lot of that is just when you say a lot of things, you're going to get
2: attacked, right? It is just part of the game. One of the things that you hit on that I'd like to, to bring it back to for a second is you got into the crypto space. You were dealing with a lot of these funds that are involved in tons of different coins in the VC area as well. What was it that set you off on the, towards the Bitcoin maximalist side of the spectrum? I think, honestly, it was understanding
0: that Bitcoin was the only one of those coins that, in my view, had a a true long term uh, thesis around it, like a real use case that helps make the average person's life better. I think a lot of the other uh, use cases are speculative and there may be a few other tokens right, or a few other blockchains over time that end up adding real societal value. But from my view, as I I dug into it more and more, Bitcoin was the only thing to me that qualified as, as sound money. It was the only asset that really deserved a place in my portfolio which is sort of institutional caliber in nature right i only want to own assets that i'd be comfortable holding for 10 or 15 plus years even ethereum doesn't quite check the box for me because of how many changes there there are to that protocol over time and and to me it's it's got a lot more competition right whereas bitcoin sort of already won right it's it's got 99 percent of the digital store value Market right, and and it's got the brand, and it's got the network effects. I don't think anything supplants it because nothing is going to do what Bitcoin does better than what Bitcoin does, right? But there are probably fifty chains that could beat Ethereum at very uh, various different things that it's trying to do. So, so yeah. there are a lot of different factors there, but a lot of it was just sitting with it, right? Going on long uh, uh, hikes and long runs in the mountains and meditation, right? And just thinking deeply about where I see the world going in the next ten or fifteen years. And as I did that kind of thinking and work over time, it became more and more clear that Bitcoin was the answer and most of these other things probably won't matter at all.
1: I love what you just said there in that prioritizing time to synthesize ideas. This is something Josh and I talk about quite a bit because I think there's a lot of hungry learners and intellectuals that inhale book after book, article after article, podcast after podcast, but they don't take the... and, And we're guilty of this too. They don't take the necessary time to Put the pieces together in their own head. And that's something the two of us have tried to do more and more and encourage one another to do more and more. Like for me, it's walking at forest reserves or mm-hmm. meditating or whatever. But even if it's 10, 15 minutes a day, you know what I mean? The power that has for you to develop your own ideas, to think critically for yourself and not just regurgitate what you read on the page yesterday. And for me, and I think that the three of us would agree the bright orange bee has gotten brighter in this space, the more I've actually gone back to first principles and thought with my own head. So many people don't take that time and effort to really put together ideas for themselves.
0: And look, I'm I'm super grateful, right? Because I've been able to take six, eight hours a day for 10 plus years now, um, and sort of spend it on whatever I wanted to do, which for a long time was running ultra marathons. Right, I, I trained and started running ultra marathons in 2008. I would just leave the office in the afternoon. Right, I was the CEO, so I would just leave uh, at one o'clock and go running for three hours. And actually, a lot of my best thinking, a lot of the most elegant problem solving I ever did as mm. an executive, as a as a leader, happened on those runs, not when I was in the office in a meeting, not slamming Red Bulls and sitting at a computer screen.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um,
0: so he, even 10 years ago, when I wasn't as successful 10, 12 years ago, I still would carve out sometimes two full days a week of just white space. I would just refuse to allow my assistant to put any, uh, any appointments on the calendar so that I could just let the day flow. Like I would read what I wanted to read. I would read a, a couple pages of the journal and then I'd flip to a, an article online, right? Or I'd flip to a, a 10Q or a 10K that, of a company that I was interested in or in a new industry that I wanted to study. And then again, I would leave in the afternoon and do freeform thought. Right. So I do two, three hours of focus work in the morning, then a three hour run, then a little bit of uh, dinner and a cocktail. Right. And then a little bit more work and reading in the evening. Um, And so now it's even better. Right. Because I don't have any employees. I don't have an HR director a CFO. I don't have any investors. Right. It's just me. And so I wake up and do that every single day, all day long. What you just described, I spend 10 or 12 hours a day doing. And obviously in between that, I'm tweeting and getting in fights with people on
2: Twitter. Uh, But that's all part of the game. Right. I would imagine with that kind of a mindset, you're probably not watching CNN, Fox News, and getting all riled up about the current events of the day. I think that's also something to, there's something to be said for keeping yourself in a peaceful mindset and not getting inundated with this media, you know, propaganda, if you want to call it that. I mean, that includes Twitter and Facebook and all these things as well. But you have to keep yourself in a healthy mindset of disassociating yourself from those stimuli that are constantly trying to trigger that amphibian brain. To fear, or you know, have some kind of a reaction that they're looking for to get you to click on and go down the rabbit hole of just crazy fear mongering, and I think that's even more relevant now, and especially in the last two years, with how COVID has basically set everybody off on a ten and that reptilian brain for fear, and now we're transitioning into this Ukrainian-Russian conflict. Um, the question I'm trying to get at is really how do you personally parse your way through this information? Because I know personally. That when I try to understand what's going on, there's never, it's very, very difficult to find some some kind of a rational middle ground of somebody giving you some information without something attached to it, like some kind of an opinion or some bias that is trying to inform you of how to think of the world. Like it seems like there are very few sources of just information without trying to push your reptilian brain into total fear mode. Do you have any advice for people about that, or do you have you found anything that helps? Well, look, I think
0: uh, independent critical thinking is a muscle, and it needs to be flexed and, and exercised. And I, I'm blessed because you know I read sometimes thousands of pages in a week, uh, you know, as a young man. And so, reading, right, especially if you can read a lot of different perspectives of high quality sources, can help you synthesize and get closer to the truth than any one source, right? Like, so if I just flip on Fox News or just flip on MSNBC or CNN right now, or if I just go to one of those websites, I'm gonna get a perspective. but I don't think you can get the full perspective ever, obviously, right? But you can get more of a perspective if you can get different slices. You can read as much as possible, right? And you can sort of get yourself outside of the 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 mindset of somebody who's kind of coming at it from one perspective and wanting to tell you a specific narrative, a specific story. So look, there's no, there's no answer to that. But I think some people over time develop that muscle, right? Such yeah. that they're more skeptical by nature of any one narrative. They're able to kind of hear the truth beneath the truth and ask that second and third order question right. a few more times. Right. I, I had a buddy, a really close friend of mine last night that text me and say, is this true? Is Elon Musk and Kathy Wood really giving away Bitcoin? <laughs> I mean, this is a guy who went to uh, Ivy league college, right? He's a very smart guy. And, and he was confused. And I said, dude, this is a scam. He says the internet's a scary place. I said, well, not really. I mean, if it, it could be, if you gave money to the Nigerian prince that contacted you and said you had an inheritance, but most people yeah. exercise independent critical thinking and good judgment and are able to avoid 99.9% of, of the BS. Uh, it's getting more complicated though, right? So like one example I'd give you is just Twitter. The things that get a lot of attention and virality on Twitter oftentimes are more the ice cream, right? Of, of ideas versus the broccoli, right? The broccoli, yes. like Breedlove's rabbit hole podcast, right? I Sometimes get less podcast. hits than, than podcasts that go into price or where plan B is going on there. Even though the uh, content is denser and richer and probably more valuable, the number of eyeballs, the amount of interest um, that, that will click on it, that will retweet it, that will yeah. engage with it is much lower. And I see that, you know, you see some of my tweets. It's, it is me that's tweeting. It's just sometimes it's distilled for the medium, right? Like it's, there's a deeper thought there, but if I actually expressed it fully, it would get four likes. If I express it with the ice cream and give them just the, the <laughs> ice cream with the cherry on top, right, that like it gets a thousand likes. And yeah. so the platform itself is incentivizing you to dumb down your uh, ideas is the lowest common denominator in that medium. And so that's why I, I like what like Reed Love is doing where he does a 20-hour set of sessions where if you really sit down and, and, and ingest that, you may learn something new, right? I find that I learned something new from every one of his podcasts. Even if I, I have to listen for two hours sometimes to hear two or three things that are totally new to me, but that's yeah. worthwhile to do
2: that. What I've taken recently from that is I really want to read the book, Layla or Leela. Because mm-hmm. who was he, he talking to? I can't remember about that book, but they had like a series of five episodes about it. It was Mike Hill or something? Mike Hill. Yeah, I believe yeah. so. Um, I, that book's on my list for sure, after listening to it.
1: Mike, how did you get so into value investing? So you kind of walked through some of your entrepreneurial ventures and, and starting these companies. And I know you said when you were in college, you know, you, you got your whatever... Teens grand from Cutco and started trading, but when did you kind of start adopting and embracing the value mindset?
0: By 2000, kind of six seven timeframe, I was already more interested in Buffett than I was interested in in like what Kathy Wood is doing now. Um, and part of that was living through the late 90s and early 2000s, seeing that the internet was one of the most transformative technologies, definitely of our lifetime, and maybe in human history. Right, one of the top kind of call it five or so uh, inventions that's ever been created in terms of its impact on, on transforming society. But yet, 95% of those companies that were trading in the late 90s, right, dot-com companies, went to zero. Mm. And so you start to realize that like there's a huge hype cycle in investing. And one way to filter that out and to think more in a contrarian and thoughtful way is, is to have a value-orientated lens on top of all of your decision-making. So, it's not that I never buy technology stocks or I never buy VC investments or I never do anything new. It's simply that I refuse to overpay uh, for things. So, like, I wasn't interested in Zoom at $550 a share, right? I wasn't interested in Roku at $400. I wasn't interested in Teladoc at $300 because I don't buy things that have 50 that trade at 50 to 100 times sales. Because the last time I saw that happen in the late 90s, people got absolutely hosed. Uh, Instead, I own healthcare, right? Instead, I own boring uh, financial services and, and energy MLPs and things that nobody wanted to own over the last two years. But guess what? They're all up this year. And people who just own Netflix and Shopify and Zoom and Arc and et cetera are down 30, 40, 50%. So I, I think of it just as an intelligent long-term way to, uh, to invest in a risk-adjusted way. I view Bitcoin as maybe the most uh, compelling value investment in, in human history. And that's why I have it as my largest single concentrated uh, position. Uh, but I also continue to own and will continue to own indefinitely other great businesses that I think trade at a good valuation. So I'm I'm industry agnostic. I'm not against technology. I'm just against overpaying uh, yeah. for technology stocks. And I think that's a nuance that most people miss. They see me, you know, railing on Kathy Wood stocks, and they think Mike Mike's a luddite. He doesn't like technology. That couldn't be further from the truth. I've started two software companies, right? Yeah. I've owned Amazon and stocks like Google off and on for a decade or two, depending on the name, right? And so. It's not that I'm not interested in those names, I'm just not interested in overpaying. That's all value means. It's you got to pay the right price for the businesses because if you pay overpay at the entry price, you're going to underperform over the long run.
1: Fill that in for us and our audience. Why is Bitcoin the best value investment you've ever seen?
0: I think the the one of the most important things to understand about it is that it, it literally cannot be turned off, right? And so because it's systematically more scarce than the fiat unit of account that it's converted into, it systematically accrues purchasing power, right? And, and almost like a straight line over long periods. So the, the, the great illusion with Bitcoin is that it's this volatile asset. I, I think of it totally differently. I think the fiat system, the traditional fiat system, Keynesian economics, et cetera, is the volatile thing, right? Because it, it swings with the tides and politics and emotions and Bitcoin doesn't. It literally just keeps confirming. Uh, you know, new transactions approximately every 10 minutes. It just it propagates its monetary policy in an objective, unbiased way using math and code. And, and so because of that, you could just sort of draw a line using Metcalf's law, right? You just keep adding nodes to the network and you see the value go exponential. And so on a point-to-point basis, there's no reason why you shouldn't be able to compound your money in fiat terms, right? Uh, at 30, 40, 50, 60% annualized over the next couple decades, because the market size of Bitcoin is probably the largest uh, market size, right? Right. They call it TAM, total addressable market in human history. You can sort of build a model of 30, 40, 50% annualized returns for two decades, but with no execution risk, right? Because you don't have a CEO, you don't have a board of directors, you don't have stock options, you don't have dilution, you don't have lawsuits, you don't have anyone you can call before Congress and 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 basically grill them. How dare you uh, make young girls feel bad about themselves? I'm talking about Instagram and (laughs) and Zuck here, a company that I refuse to invest in. I'd rather invest in tobacco uh, stocks, right, and oil stocks than than Facebook. And so so to me, like you get a Tesla or Amazon type return string with way lower risk, right? And so for that reason, I think it's actually a value investment. Yes, it's going the network will grow, but the investment I think itself has that sort of value oriented approach to. Um, you know, protecting your wealth uh, by by allocating to something that, in my view, is worth less than it will be in the future.
2: So, on uh, Preston's podcast that you did with him last September, you went um, you went on quite a long explanation of why mining stocks and Bitcoin could be potentially multi- a multiplier on the returns of Bitcoin. Could you walk us and our audience through that thesis? And is that something that you still adhere to or believe? So i i
0: di- I didn't say that it would be. Like a tremendous multiple over Bitcoin. I think, just to be really clear at the outset, I think most people should own Bitcoin. Bitcoin is the simplest way to get exposure to Bitcoin. Yeah, it's the most agreed. foolproof way. It's the way that uh, requires the least amount of sophistication. You know, if, you're, if, if you understand it at a very simple level, then and you allocate to it anywhere from 1% of your portfolio to say 50% of your portfolio, you'll do quite well over five or 10 years. But remember, I'm a business builder, value investor. I enjoy building these companies. I'm on the board of Iris Energy, which is a publicly traded Bitcoin miner with a, I don't know, right now, 800, 900 million market cap, right? And I've spent a lot of time with these with these firms. And so because, because I love building companies and because I think Bitcoin mining is important for the long-term sustainability of Bitcoin, I choose to invest my capital in Bitcoin. But it's always an amount of money that I'd be willing to willing to lose. So I want to say that at the outset. Uh, That said, if you understand Bitcoin and you're bullish on Bitcoin, you understand the thesis, it's hard not to get excited about miners because miners are literally keeping the network secure. They're the only source of new Bitcoin. They create new Bitcoin every 10 minutes. There's no such thing as new Bitcoin without a miner. And in order for the network to scale to be the the world's money, uh, Bitcoin miners have to be successful. Like this argument that three guys on a laptop can protect a network that's going to have trillions and trillions of dollars stored on it from sovereigns and Sovereign wealth funds and insurance companies and individual savers. That's just it's bogus, right? And I get why the clubs they want to go back. It's like, let's make America great again, right? Like people are looking backwards and like, I want to go back to the way it was in 2012 when I was the only guy I knew who was mining. And it's like, well, it's evolving, right? Bitcoin grows organically. It incentivizes people in the ecosystem to build out all the parts of the stack, whether it's exchanges or wallets or things like strike that help you buy and transfer, right? Or miners. And so the miners to me, um, once you understand Bitcoin, are sort of like a no brainer investment as long as you buy the miners that are going to be around in five or 10 years. So, right, the real question if Bitcoin is systematically going to be more valuable, and you own a piece of one of the only organizations in the world that will create new Bitcoin. Uh, you know, it's, it's hard not to understand why you wouldn't want a piece of that balance sheet. And so, I, I started with Preston, like thinking about the balance sheet side, like let's model out how Marathon and Hutt. Uh, right, add 10, 20, 30,000 Bitcoin to their balance sheet since they've both announced that they're hodling Bitcoin. They don't sell, neither of them has sold a Bitcoin as far as I know in the last year and a half. Core Scientific has started to do that, right? There are other miners that have started to hodl the Bitcoin on the balance sheet, and then they're all raising low cost debt now. So the last marathon round was done at like a 1% interest rate and a 37.5% conversion premium. So they're able, and MicroStrategy did the same thing, right? MicroStrategy did the similar convertible note structure. So they're raising basically almost free fiat capital in order to acquire uh, miners and also to acquire uh, Bitcoin and put it on their balance sheet. So I just think these organizations are going to hone a lot more Bitcoin than the average uh, S&P 500 company. And therefore, if you model Bitcoin's price getting to a million bucks over the next decade, these are going to be very, very valuable companies. And so If you're going to stay long Bitcoin, my view is you should own the means of production as well.
1: You did with Preston. You did some back of the envelope math, and I don't want to put you on the spot here because you may not have these numbers in front of you. But are you able to walk through some of the basics? I think you did it with maybe it was Hut 8 and Marathon. I'm a little
0: rusty on the Marathon and and Hut, to be honest, because ever since I joined the board of Iris last fall, that was a few months after I did Preston's podcast, I haven't stayed as up to date. I do know that they're. Tracking a little behind the numbers from from Preston's podcast. And I think the key thing to point out there is that this market is getting more competitive.
2: Yeah. Hash rate so has gone up a lot. Hash
0: rate's gone up. And that's something like last summer when we were in the dumps and China pulled their hash, I was all over Twitter spaces yelling about how much hash rate was going to go up. And the, some of the people were like, Mike, you're crazy. I'm like, you don't understand. I literally saw hundreds of millions of dollars of financings happening at Night Egg. And I knew that you know, North American miners were absolutely going to be rolling in capital over the following sort of 24 to 36 months. And that's happening. That's playing out. It's even accelerating now. I'm seeing multiple miners being able to raise kind of billion dollar plus uh, amounts, right, in, in large financing. So the, the, the one thing to keep in mind is that like, this could be a harder business than, than people realize today. Because if hash rate goes from 200x right. a hash to 400x a hash to 600x a hash, yeah. if you're not marathon, Right, Good luck. Marathon just raised eight fifty last fall. They're out raising again. Right, um, Core Scientific just went public. We just went public. Right in November, we're raising another couple billion dollars over the next few years and a combination of debt, probably mostly debt financing. Right, so um, it, it, the market's going to be harder now. The top five percent of operators, though, should be able to stack and hodl Bitcoin over the course of a decade or more right? And continue to stay relevant. You got to keep your cost of capital low, right? You got to keep your financing costs as low as possible. You got to only buy machines, right? When they're cheap. So for example, Iris did a landmark deal with, with Bitmain last year, $533 million of machines at $30 a terahash. The end of last summer, right when everybody was freaked out about the price having and BlockFi and Celsius almost went under and most people never even heard about this because there was a private bailouts done. And so you, you know, in those tough times, the miners that are well financed are going to be able to pick up machines cheap and, and actually use them to generate more Bitcoin. The problem right. is, is a big chunk of the miners that are there today, a, a bunch of them may not exist in five or ten years, and mm-hmm. therefore you'd be better off taking that capital and putting in Bitcoin. So you really have to be careful, which is why I, I've only recommended a small handful of names where I know the management teams, right? I know I know how they think about the business, I know how they're running
2: the balance sheet, etc. But there's no yep. Right. there's no silver bullet here. Let's let's talk about BlockFi and Celsius a bit because of what you just mentioned. And I mean, Dan and I have both played that game of let's put a little bit of money on there and collect their eight percent when they were offering that, and it's great. But the counterparty risk is so opaque. There, you don't understand. Nobody knows how they're running their game. What's going on inside this black box? And I wasn't even aware of what you just said that they had both almost gone out of business in the last year. Could you? Could you uh, go on that a little?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, when you're offering to the public 8% or 10% or whatever yields, right, the idea is that you have to go out and generate a higher yield than that right. with that capital. So, they need to make money on the stock. They, all they were doing was taking your capital and lending it out to other people. But guess what? They're lending them out to increasingly risky things, right, In- increasingly risky ventures and even trades that looked foolproof, like this GBTC uh, premium trade. So, you know, BlockFi had a huge amount of money. Yeah. and gbtc it looked risk free because it had been trading at a 20 or 30% premium to nav right for several years and so they put a whole bunch of money into it right as the premium flipped from positive right. to negative they essentially trapped yep. themselves in a trade they couldn't get out of and the trade was simple right put put your money in and wait 6 or 7 months right and just basically harvest that premium with sort of no market risk assuming the price stayed the same but that's not the way bitcoin works bitcoin's price swings all different ways. And, and so what happens is when the price draws down, there are a lot of levered institutions, a lot of levered entities, a lot of levered traders that sort of get wiped out. And a lot of the so-called yield that's being generated is generated from lending money to these various counterparties. So you're not just doing business with Blockfire Blockfire Celsius, you're doing business without knowing it with all of these other firms. Um, and and in my view, um, these, these two firms in particular had very primitive uh, and, and undeveloped risk management frameworks, right? And so they were doing things with their money that no sophisticated Wall Street firm that is regulated, right, in, in any sort of way would, would have done. Now, that, that's not saying a lot because a lot yeah. of those firms went under in 2008, but, but I mean, it was worse than that, right? Some of the stuff that was going on last year and the year before was worse than that.
2: Yeah, um, and, and the, so feds, this the idea not that, bailing that, yeah. these guys out.
0: No. And there, there's no FDIC insurance, right? There's no, there's no protection other than the equity investors saying, look, we still think this brand is valuable enough that we're going to keep injecting equity capital. And the founders are going to get diluted every time they take more capital. You, you don't see it other than that your yield goes down and that the amount of money that they're willing to uh, pay that yield against is going down, right? You remember all of a sudden where they said, okay, you can't, you can't put more money in or you can't put more, more BTC in at this yield, right? And then the yield went
1: down. The yields plummeted. And yep, it felt yep. like you you may know more, Mike, but it did feel like the drying up of the GBTC premium and the yields falling off the cliff at say BlockFi happened at uh, pretty much the exact same time. Um, Josh and I were in complete alignment right away because it, it is appealing, like you're you're looking for yield, like anybody, but it it. Feels especially down at the numbers we're at right now. I mean, it is picking pennies up in front of a steamroller. Like, why would you Correct. risk the most pristine asset of the 21st century for a percent? Or I mean, I don't know where they're at right now, but
0: they. I they- mean, even even at even at eight or ten percent, I wasn't interested. But that's because I understood the underwriting risk that they were taking, and that that's why I was on Spaces last summer, yelling about this, and people are like, "What do you mean? What do you mean?" It's got got to be safe. I'm like, it's not, this is not uh, JP Morgan we're talking about. There's a couple kids that raised a little bit of venture capital and spun up a website, right? They don't have any sophisticated risk frameworks. They have no idea the dominoes that'll happen if the price falls even 20%. There's no, they don't even have a model for that, right? But the price falls 50%, right? So what do you think happens, right? Exactly what we saw happen. And so we're lucky that there wasn't more carnage, right? We're lucky that there's so much liquidity in the economy globally right? That, that there are investors that are desperate to get exposure to this space who are willing to step in at lower prices and basically backstop these firms. You're never, going to hear about, you're never going to hear about this as the end consumer. But what I was warning people is that they're taking way more risk. So personally, I've never used a yield service and I probably wouldn't unless it's something that's like a call writing strategy, like, like an institutional grade call writing strategy. But even that is not that interesting to me because I think you're going to beat every strategy by just buying and holding Bitcoin for 10 years and essentially not looking at it, not lending it out, not hypothecating it, right? Just leaving it alone, cold storage.
1: For somebody that does want, back to the 401k discussion, which you're uh, very familiar with. So for your typical middle-class investor that's got a Roth IRA or two, a 401k, um, and they're looking for exposure at Fidelity, right? What so are what options stand out to you? So, in our head, GBTCs. Mm-hmm. If you can't have the bare Bitcoin, obviously that's a number one. But GBTCs tantalizing right. right now. Maybe some exposure to these miners. Give us a little bit of your input on what you would recommend to somebody that's like, hey, I'm not, I'm not pulling this out, or I'm not taking it to Unchained. I'm not going self directed. What would you recommend for that person?
0: Well, my my father in law and my mother both own Bitcoin and GBTC. I think GBTC is a good. Vehicle to use now, paradoxically, right? Not as interesting with a huge premium and a two percent fee, but with a thirty percent discount or a twenty-five percent discount, the fee is not quite as uh, material. Particularly if you consider that there's a pretty high chance that within the next kind of call it twelve to eighteen months that that product converts to an ETF, in which case the pricing would revert to NAV. So you'll capture. It's actually a really nice arbitrage trade. It's something that a like a sophisticated hedge fund would do. Uh, on the other side of, of the blowups um, uh, of the people that were long during the premium phase. So I think GBTC is fine, right? I think all things being equal, it's always better to own Bitcoin directly. Uh, if you have money in a non-retirement account, right, just sitting there, you should probably just buy Bitcoin directly and put it into cold storage using somebody like a Swan. Bitcoin was a good example. I, I do have to disclose I am a seed investor in, in Swan, um, but, but I really like the firm. I think they do a good job. And so, you know, th- that's a good option to to just use BTC direct or use GBTC if you want sort of more direct exposure. But then if you want to go further down, MicroStrategy is essentially a closet ETF. It's it's even more of a pure play on Bitcoin because it doesn't do any mining, right? There's just a small software business with like $50 million of, of earnings, <laughs> In right, two years, they've turned those.
2: themselves from a <laughs> small software business into a Bitcoin ETF and a side Software business.
0: <laughs> yeah. A levered, a levered Bitcoin ETF. So when Bitcoin goes up a lot, if it goes up a lot in the future, MicroStrategy should go up pretty substantially. And then the miners, right? Core and Iris and Marathon and HUD and some of these really high quality industrial grade names. If those, if those companies are around in five, six, seven years, I'm pretty confident they're going to be 20, 30, 40, 50 Xs. And they'll be they'll be amongst the most powerful companies in the world if if Bitcoin does what we think it does. If it doesn't, then it doesn't matter anyway. I think. But
2: I've got a question for you about the MicroStrategy in in specific. Um, They had I was reading because I own some of that, and I was reading their one of their uh, disclosures about it, and it said they can dilute stock in order to buy more Bitcoin. So in my mind, I'm thinking I will have a diluted amount of stock in this overall um, amount of circulating stock they have, but I will have a, like a, a more Bitcoin in exchange for that. Is that something you've thought about at all, about how he can dilute people in that exposure to, to their percentage of stock ownership in, in exchange for a higher percentage of Bitcoin? And does that worry you at all owning, owning MicroStrategy? Well, remember, everybody's getting diluted, including Sailor himself, right? So
0: whenever you do a convertible debt deal and, and, and the price goes up, which is what you want, of the equity, then they will, they will convert and you will be diluted. But remember, you'll also own an extra billion dollars of Bitcoin every time. Right. So the question is simply, does the price of Bitcoin, the value of Bitcoin, go up faster dilution. than you can dilute yourself? Yeah. And the reality is, if you're using practically free uh, fiat debt that you could service just with your software cash flow, basically, and then you dilute yourself at a rate that's slower than the rate of return of Bitcoin, then on net, you're going to end up way better off. And so I think he's just playing a a bigger game. Like yeah, you're going to get diluted a little bit, but if MicroStrategy owns 200,000 or 300,000 of the 21 million Bitcoin, right? They're going to be like in 10 years they could be the most powerful company in the world. Um, so do you care if you own 0.001% or 0.000989%? Right? Like I think you have to not be penny wise pound foolish and think about it more comprehensively. I mean, we talk about this a lot in, Venture investing and startup investing, and you know I've started two companies. And y- you'd rather own one percent of a billion dollar company, right, than hundred percent of a, a company that
1: sells for two million bucks, right? This is some of what you talked about with with Preston was just like choosing the right market is key. When when so when you're starting a business or or launching a project, picking the right space to be able to accelerate is key. Yeah,
0: but it's almost self-evident, but but I guess it isn't because there's still a lot of people starting businesses in small markets. But um in all my experience and everything I've seen, the the most successful entrepreneurs almost invariably are propelled by the tailwinds of being in this large and growing market. And and so, for example, with Bitcoin, like if you're starting a Bitcoin-based business right over the last few years, even if you're not that good at it, you'll probably do okay. Right. Whereas if you're starting a business in a market that's super esoteric with like 17 customers, you could be the best in the world and you're still going to have 17 customers, right? And so, um, you you know, that's just a simple illustration of that. Um, But but you always want to start, if if you're trying to build like a VC scale business, right? You're trying to build a public company or you're trying to build something with real scale, you definitely want to start with a market sizing exercise. You want to ask like, how big could this really be at scale? Right? Could could there be 10 million customers? Could there be 50 million customers? Could there be a billion customers? If you're Facebook, right? And remember that with Facebook, the customer is the is the user uh, is actually the is actually the advertiser, right? Yeah. So you you are the you are the product there. But with most business models, you know, you sort of want somebody to pay you directly. Um, so I, I always start with that, right? And I generally won't invest anymore in companies that are going to be smaller because it's so much work. To build a high quality company and 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 what from what i've seen it's just as easy to build a big company than it is to build a small company so if you're going to spend five or ten years of your life and a lot of your time and effort
2: and energy you might as well try to build something bigger in my view i want to transition us a bit over into the uh, geopolitics of what's going on in the world right now um in the last month we've seen canada have protests that they turned into an emergency order to freeze people's bank accounts which I think a lot of people view it as a giant advertising campaign for why Bitcoin's relevant. And then we've seen Russia invade Ukraine and Ukrainian, the Ukrainian military accepting Bitcoin donations to help fund their military. Obviously, another giant billboard. And now I, I just saw this today. Anonymous is, I don't know if you, either of you guys saw this, and Anonymous, who knows who they are? They're probably the NSA or something, but they're, they're offering Russian military crews $50,000 in Bitcoin to just hand over tanks. <laughs> which is which is hilarious and what a beautifully peaceful way to end a war like just pay the soldiers to stop and fuck off um what do you what is your take on all this mike uh where is this what is this where is this all going what do you think
0: i think it's all part of the natural evolution of of human civilization right and and human cultures even the nature of war is changing, right? Like people always have conflicts, but the conflicts are changing and morphing in, in terms of how these these wars are being waged, right? Like there's a propaganda war and a narrative war going on, right? There's a financial war going that's probably even more impactful yes. than the actual tanks in the field, right? And there's a there's a part of that financial war is is obviously the sanctions and the you know the largest bank in, in Russia basically almost going to zero recently, all that bounce a little bit today um, but also just this idea that like people can fight wars by having sovereign control of their money and if they don't have full control over their money then they're at risk mm-hmm. right they, they've increased yeah. the surface area and you know Jason Lowry and others have have uh, illustrated this a bunch recently so I don't want to go into to too much depth there but I view this all as part of a natural evolution again back to the Bitcoin value investment thing. I just think Bitcoin is going to be a million dollar, million, three million dollar asset. I have no idea how. Yeah. I have no idea exactly what the narratives are along the way. I don't know exactly which countries adopt it first. I don't know which banks adopt it first. I don't know which insurance companies uh, buy the most of it. But I know that after we get to a million or 2 million or 3 million dollars, it'll be very clear looking back that that was all part of the natural evolution. So everything that happens essentially in geopolitics is being infused more and more with with some of the ideas that underpin Bitcoin, uh, which just makes sense because Bitcoin was an idea whose time had come. Yep. And so because it's, an, it's the right money, it's the right idea for the moment, almost everything that happens is going to have some implication on Bitcoin and Bitcoin is going to have some implication on it. Um, so the details almost don't matter, right? I don't, want to be, I don't want to be heartless. Like I care about what happens to people around the world. I don't want anyone to get killed. I don't want anyone to be hurt. I don't want anyone to, to right, lose their job or... yeah who's a family member or or anything like that. Um, But as it relates to like stepping back and and thinking about what it means for Bitcoin, I think it's all part of the plan essentially.
1: Yeah. And a lot of that comes from your perspective of, you are you know, you're an ultra long-term investor with this. And I I think that's where there is a disconnect. You know, we find it's that we say we're thinking long-term, but how people define long-term is very different. And some people's head long-term is six months or a year. And we're kind of sitting here- In our 30s, saying, like, no, no, no. We're we're thinking in in terms of decades here. Like, we don't give a shit about price action in a week or a month or even six months or a year. Like,
0: there's so much myopic thinking, right, in in the world and and particularly in the investment world. Some of it is driven by this like dopamine hit of social media and modern society. Like, we used to sit without cell phones, without any internet connectivity, and just read a book in the afternoon. For five hours uninterrupted, like who does that anymore? Not even the great scholars can get away with that anymore because their phone is ringing and they're getting a text from their wife. You know, come down for dinner or whatever. <laughs> but then there's also the professional component to it, which is that it's very hard to actually invest for the long run because if you underperform for a month, your your uh, investors are going to get a statement that says you underperform.
2: Kathy Woods finding out
0: about that, right? If you underperform for a quarter, <laughs> eventually the CEO of your firm is going to be concerned, and so nobody's actually. Everyone says we are long-term oriented, but the reality is that unless you're managing your own money, it's almost impossible to actually do it. Mm -hmm. So I'm a little bit of a unicorn because I'm actually doing some scale investing right, in companies, early stage investing, where I take a board seat, right, where I'm trying to own single digit percentages of the equity, but I have no outside investors. So when I say I'm long-term, I'm really genuinely saying, I'm planning to hold some of these positions for 10, 15, or 20 years. My, my goal for my investing is to outperform over a 30 or 40-year timeframe. I'm 40 years old. I, I hope to be investing well into my 80s uh, actively. And so I look around. I don't see a lot of people like me on the, on the field. I see a lot of people pretending that they care about the long-term, but they, 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 they uh, cut bait the moment Bitcoin goes down 20%. Yeah. Like, oh my God, I got to get out of this because I don't want my investors to see this underperformance. and um, so I totally agree with you there. I think a lot of it's sort of uh, related to the structural element of professional investing and the re- it's, performance reporting and the fees and all that, which has nothing to do with actual like long-term performance. In my, view.
2: It has a lot to do with them. I mean, we have all seen the meme of the two tables, one of them with a sign that says understanding Bitcoin and the other one with the mm-hmm. sign that says predicting the Bitcoin price tomorrow and everyone's lining up for the short-term Bitcoin pump ideas. Like there's uh, Twitter accounts that everyone sees. Um, MM Crypto comes to mind. Like the guy with his jaw ape, with like predicting you know tomorrow is going to have a five thousand dollar pump, and everybody, you know, he's got ten thousand likes. And people like Breed Love who are having in depth, intelligent conversations with people that are very well thought through. It just doesn't interest the majority of people. Um, Correct. And you, I mean, there's a lot of arguments on how fiat might have. Changed our time preference in a way. I think there's a lot of truth to that. People just have a very, they have a short time preference. They want everything now. Mm-hmm. And modern society is built for us to have everything right this second. And and when everyone else is looking for the immediate short-term cookie, the real money is keep your eyes on the prize and think 20 years ahead. Like play chess, not checkers. That's right. Yeah.
1: I do like it when you explore this on Twitter and in other forums. I've heard you speak, whether it's on Spaces or somewhere else, Mike, it's it's just, you know, we cover it a lot, but just how fundamentally broken signals are. Like in this age of never ending liquidity and rampant fiscal and, and monetary policy, things like meme stocks and momentum trading are, are ruling over studying fundamentals, value investing, kind of an Austrian mindset. As we think about today's institutional space, hedge funds, even Wall Street, do you think that that, sh- that high time preference has really permeated that space in a way that's incapacitated them from taking the necessary positions or moves at this point?
0: You know, I, I, I don't know as it relates to Bitcoin. The, the thing that constantly jumps out at me is just the fact that keeping interest rates at zero and putting trillions of dollars of new money into the economy convinces more and more people over time that, like, chasing. The hottest asset, whatever that asset is, is a good idea. Could be mm-hmm. Cardano, could be XRP, right? It could be Solana, it could be Zoom or Roku or Teladoc or ARK funds or whatever. A- a- and then you look on Twitter and you see these like people that blue checks with 200,000, 300,000, 500,000 uh, million plus followers like clapping for this stuff. Like, we look at this. Like, this is so great that. You know the retail investor is taking the power back. I'm like, that's not taking the power back. That's just being idiotic. You're just you're you're buying assets that have no real long term value. Um, so like this whole democratizing, uh, you know, investing thing to me is a double edged sword, right? Like on one hand, everyone should have access to markets. Like that's good. Does everyone does everyone need a gamified app that encourages them to trade call options on Robinhood? No, absolutely not. Does everyone <laughs> need to own GameStop or Cardano yeah. or any of this absolute Dog shit? Absolutely not. Right. And, and I try to be the voice of reason. Like when I see some of these big name influencers cheering for this stuff, I come in and I say, no, like Dogecoin, Cardano, uh, Zoom, Netflix, Shopify are not good holdings. If you care about maintaining the value of your portfolio and, and actually growing it and compounding it over the next couple of decades, you have to, you have to eschew those things. You have to avoid them. Um, and so, yes, you can clap for democratized investing if you want. Uh, but but that should not include going along
2: with all the all of the day's BS, which is pervasive now. I didn't even know you could trade options on Robinhood. Do they have any kind of educational content like, hey, before you start trading this shit? <laughs> I mean, because even in Binance, I've used Binance in the past and played around with like, their tiers of being able to use options in the crypto space, which I have been guilty of doing years ago. They make you go through some basic courses on understanding what it is this is. They don't just allow you to go in there and buy you know, call options for next month without having any rudimentary understanding of what it is you're doing, which is good. I mean, but they still give you full access to you know, burning, your, burning your house down if you want. Mm-hmm. But
0: Yeah, I think Robinhood, a big chunk of their revenue last year and the year before was, was uh, options trading, right? So it's not the majority of the volume, but it is a majority of the revenue because people pay more for that. And then you know, also a big chunk of the revenue is Dogecoin. Right last year, I just
2: saw BlockFi edit Dogecoin. Like I got an email last night about it. I was like, Jesus Christ! It's called desperation.
0: That should tell you everything you need to know about both the culture and the ethos, right? And 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 just the economic reality of that business, right? Because if if there was really any sort of intellectual honesty there, they wouldn't do that, right? Period. And look, I could say the same thing for Coinbase. And I'm a shareholder of Coinbase. I don't love everything they do um but if you look at their institutional business um, that's where microstrategy buys and stores their their bitcoin right so like people should be honest like if you love michael Saylor, but then you hate coinbase you're being a hypocrite you know is what it is and there's a lot of hypocrisy and there's a lot of nuance in this space right so i'm i'm saying what i'm saying because i believe it to be true but i'm not saying everything that i own is immune to that right like at the end of the day coinbase is just as guilty as robin hood of a lot of this stuff
2: it's kind of mind blowing that so they're storing everything there all hundred and whatever twenty thousand coins they yeah, have. Yeah,
0: because they because they have to. The institutions have to have an audit trail, right? And I think have, they
2: would spread that through a different, a few different companies. Like have Nidig hold some of it. I mean, I would. I think would.
0: I think there was some conversations about doing that, but I have no idea whether that actually. Yeah. I have
2: no inside information on whether that happened. I
0: just know that as of the last time I looked at it, you know, MicroStrategy does all of their trading with Coinbase. But Coinbase has really low fees for institutions, and they have a really high quality custodial platform. And the the honest truth is that amongst those top tier of custodians, the Night Eggs, the Coinbases, the Gemini's, there's really not a lot of significant differentiation in the core business. The differentiation is in the value-added services on top. What a huge honeypot, right? though. And the lending and the yield, exactly. So you you build up $200 billion, $400 billion, eventually a trillion dollars of, of assets, you can build a really big financial services business on all of the other services that you can offer these large corporates and hedge funds. and sovereign wealth funds, et cetera. So I think Coinbase is playing the right game. That's why I'm a shareholder. I think over a five-year period, it's going to be hard to lose money in that uh, stock if you're buying it under 200 bucks. I've been very consistent about that. And I'm more than happy to raise my hand and say I was wrong if it's not higher in a few years, but it's going to be a lot higher.
1: Back to the geopolitics. I think this is a period of time we're going to look back on with some clarity. I mean, you used the word billboard earlier, Josh. They're just... Like there's kind of four things I'm thinking about. The, the first, you have the obvious, all the artificiality in markets, interest rate manipulation, the Fed stepping in, the concerns about debasement with where we are in a debt cycle, like the money printer go burr oversimplified meme. But that's the value proposition of Bitcoin. Then, you know, I think of what happened in Canada. Now, now enter the censorship resistant aspect, kind of blinking. A third thing that comes to mind is. Although some people may be averse to this line of thinking, right now, what's going on with Russia and Ukraine is it's very obvious that global players are going to want out of this system of dollar hegemony. The way money settles internationally is going to change. There's going to be demand for payment rails outside the USD.
2: I think there's very good argument to say that that is one of the primary reasons this is happening. I think that there's yeah. a bigger game of chess going on that has a lot less to do with Ukraine and a lot more to do with... Getting themselves off
1: of a system where they're literally trading valuable commodities
2: for devaluing currency.
1: Yeah. And then fourth, on top of that, now you flip over the other side of the conflict and you're thinking, you know, my God, it's it's demonstrating these current events are demonstrating the importance of having first layer money. Like we just had Nick Bhatti on talking about the layers of money and the importance of a bare asset that you actually possess in a fractionally reserved system. My point here is it just seems like billboard after billboard is, is popping up bigger and bigger. And it's, it's, getting, it's getting harder for me to understand when this isn't clicking for people that look into it. You know, let's, let's zoom out away from price and just look at fundamentals of the use case and value proposition of this network. It seems so profound. Even in the last three months, it's hard to wrap your head around.
0: Yeah, I think it's been a multi-year process though. Right, I think the most recent round of things just uh, brings it into starker focus. But this has been going on for several years, where the the use cases, the sort of obvious nature of of uh, Bitcoin relative to what's happening in the world, and why why it should be a good hedge against some of those things. My orange billing conversations have been going well for a couple of years now, um, and I haven't seen a huge variation recently. Um, you know, my one of the most recent. People I orange pilled was, um, Al Harrington, the 16 year NBA star. We were in Hawaii, uh, at the pool at the four seasons and just started talking. And before I knew, we were talking for three hours, right? We were talking for three hours just about Bitcoin. And the thing, one of the things that really jumped out to him was that used car prices were going up. We were just, we had a good long chuckle about how used car prices were going up and, and how ridiculous that was. And I said, well, that's why you own Bitcoin. And so again, nothing to do with geopolitics, just how crazy is the system where asset prices are doing things that yeah. you just never thought would happen. Uh, there's, there's like a hundred different things like that that you can use. But in general, my hit rate, when somebody actually wants to talk about Bitcoin with me, my hit rate is like near hundred percent right now. And so I think all of these headlines and stuff are helping, but I honestly think the case has been really good for a long time. And I, I don't think it's like, Substantially better now, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe maybe I'll get 20 calls next week, and they'll all want to buy Bitcoin that day.
1: I think some of that's the perspective of like speaking to investors. Like the the case has been there for investors for a long time. I think there's some things going on right now that make this more obvious for people that are less uh, have less of that angle, mm-hmm. if that makes sense.
2: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I think for regular people that haven't been paying close attention or have a really good grasp of what what money is or how it works are becoming. Mm-hmm. Much more attuned to things going on in the world that they never expected. Like in the US, very specifically, there's no reason to have to worry about having your money locked in your bank account. But in Russia right now, they just got a haircut of like 80% from some of the things I was reading. They just locked up and they weren't allowing them to take out more than a specific amount of rubles, or the money was just completely nationalized. Um, that's something in Russia that maybe is not completely abnormal. That's happened there like roughly every 10 years since the 90s. But there's right. a very different disposition there about how their currency system works than here, and I I think that people may be surprised as this whole geopolitical thing works its way through the system that maybe it is something we need to worry about a bit more here, um, as witnessed in Canada just very recently. Like these aren't places that are generally known as places that have you know nationalized or locked people's bank accounts up for you know bullshit reasons generally. Like there's going to be a, a right. more of a use case for a general person to have money that's unconfiscatable in the future.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, look, the oligarchs have understood this for 30 years now, and that's why they all move to London and other places and buy assets that put them in trust in the name of their, their wife or whatever. Um, I think the average person maybe isn't as attuned to it. Uh, you know, my wife's Russian. Her, my, her uh, father was actually born in Ukraine, in Odessa. Uh, back in the 1950s, um, he left in 19 mid 1970s because of uh, a religious oppression, and so he's sitting here now in Las Vegas, down the street from us. We moved them out here when we moved here a couple of years ago, and so I see him every week, and we've been talking about what's what's going on there. Now he's owned Bitcoin for five years because I got him into Bitcoin five years ago. He's been very happy with the with the outcome so far, but he talks to a lot of all of his friends are Russian, right? And and they're finally. Starting to ping him and say, "Hey, like, tell me more about this Bitcoin thing that you've been talking about with your (laughs) son-in-law, you know, for the last five years." So, it'll be interesting to see if this conflict, at least with the Russian community in the U.S., kind of opens more eyes too, because they all have family still, right, in Russia now or in Ukraine now, uh, who are being affected by some of these things. So, if if it's going to change people's perspectives, you'd expect it to happen in that community first. So, I'll be keeping my finger on that pulse.
1: Mike, you talk about Bitcoin being the biggest addressable market in human history. How big do you think this market is?
0: I mean just just look at uh, look at real estate. I think real estate's like two hundred something trillion, right? I think uh, uh, gold's ten to fifteen trillion, depending on who you ask, right? I think fiat currencies are tens and tens of trillions. You add up all of the assets, bonds, obviously, are a huge market as well. If you add up all of them, you you get to something on the order of 300 400 trillion probably addressable and that amount is growing right over time because you know, we are terms. growing all these yeah all these but all these all these economies are actually growing in in sort of real terms i think we'll see but we don't we'll really see if know that Continues. <laughs> it's all it's all you know, fuzzy we, we don't we don't know but that's a, but if you're in the ballpark right yeah. if if 300 400 500 is is right and you're and you got an asset today that's the best position to take share right? Like Bitcoin essentially soaks up liquidity from other parts of the economy uh, constantly, right? And I, I'm seeing that right now. I, had a, I got a call from a guy I've known for a long time. I think he's worth about a half a billion, who his biggest exposure is residential real estate in the US. And he called me last week and he said, hey, I'm really, like, I've been listening to you for years now and I own, I own like mid-single-digit millions of Bitcoin, but I really want to increase it. I'm thinking about selling some of my uh, low cap rate properties and, and purchasing Bitcoin. And I just I see I'm having that conversation over and over and over again right now because even guys who like real estate because it's this physical asset they control they no longer think they understand the real value of it because they know that there's a tremendous amount of manipulation going on they sense it even if they don't fully understand it and so they're attracted to to Bitcoin so I think pretty much any financial asset is subject to being converted into Bitcoin over time and so if that in today's dollars let's just be conservative is 200 or 300 trillion. And, and and let's say that we have something like a twenty or thirty percent odds uh, of of achieving that uh, kind of objective over the next two or three decades, then you know that that would that would tell me you need to have exposure to it
2: today. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, we've got a question from Twitter that I want to send your way. Someone, some anon named Firehouse Shitter, he asked, yep. "How long do I have to hodl before I can have a pool like yours, Mike?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it d- depends on it depends on how fast Bitcoin goes up,
0: right? I think, and it depends on how much you how much uh, Bitcoin you own at the at the start. But uh, I was very blessed because I sold two software companies, so even though I've done really well on on Bitcoin, I haven't had to liquidate any Bitcoin whatsoever to subsidize my lifestyle. And act- actually, I should say, I should state for the record, I live well below my my means, right? So. I know a lot of people in the similar kind of bracket with me that have much much bigger houses and cars. I drive a Ford F one fifty that's ten years old, um, and I'm proud of that. It's been paid off for eight years, and I'm going to drive that thing to the ground. I'm about to drive it across the country. By the way, guys, I'm heading to Albuquerque, New Mexico, and then to Oklahoma City, Little Rock, Jackson, Birmingham, Lexington, Dang, Indy, Sioux Falls, Fargo, and Denver. I'm wow. doing a huge crescent loop because I'm hitting the last eight states in the union that i haven't been to i've been to 42 states i've been to 48 countries 42 states and i've thought it was just wrong as an american to have been to more countries than i've been to states so i'm literally just i got a hall pass from my wife as long as it takes for me to hit all the states in the union that's cool hell yeah um, so I, and that's something that just has come to me in the last 10 years i just i grew up on the coast and i used to think the middle of the country was flyover and now i just i'm in love with the middle of the country like i lived in colorado for a little bit now i live in nevada and there's just a bunch of these places in the middle like texas that i'm much more interested in now um, so anyway, I, I sh- sh- should say like the, the short answer to that question is you have to huddle Bitcoin uh, as long as you need to in order to achieve your objective, whatever that is. And it's a deeply personal decision.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. We, uh, we definitely can't call you a Bitcoin maximalist at this point because you said you, you've paid off a vehicle in this in this environment. You should be <laughs> getting a loan on that F-150 and you should be piling it all into Bitcoin.
0: Yeah, that's, a, that's smart. I'm sure.
1: <laughs> yeah, you are. We, yep. Your point is, is well taken. and It's something we reiterate on this show a lot though. It's, there's a lot of basement dwelling cash poor individuals that are obsessed with Bitcoin. Like You need a job. You need to free up your cash flow. You need to do something productive if you plan to reap the benefits of buying productive assets. So go get a freaking job or increase your income or stop spending so much and buy yourself some flipping Bitcoin. It doesn't grow on trees, folks. Love it. Absolutely. Start a business. Let's end with this one. Looking at the Bitcoin space in particular, as an investor and an entrepreneurial minded individual, what opportunities do you see surrounding this protocol and network? Like, what's the most frothy opportunity? Like, hey, if I was to deploy capital in a business, it would be in this part of the space. I know your answer might be mining, but I was curious to to know if there's anything else that pops off for you.
0: Yeah. So there's sort of like a few different verticals, right? So I'm, uh, I think the exchange brokerage trading component it's crowded now. It's no longer as an attractive investment opportunity today, but I'm a long term shareholder in Coinbase, Nidig, Eagle Broke Advisors, which just raised twenty million at a at a nine figure valuation. That's a company that I seed funded two years ago. like I put the first fifty thousand dollars in at a two million dollar valuation. now it's worth you know over one hundred and twenty million. Um, so I like companies that are building kind of the infrastructure to help. Uh, RAAs, uh, institutions, et cetera, come in. So I like those three companies. Um, in the in the kind of uh, mining space, right? I really like Iris Energy where I'm on the board. I like Core, right? I like Hut and Marathon. I think mining is still very nascent. It's a startup business. These are publicly traded entities, but they're still a tenth or a hundredth of the size that they're going to be at scale. So I think it's still very early for mining. And then the kind of last piece would be sort of like the transfer Services, right? Like services that allow you to spend or send Bitcoin. And, you know, Strike is one of those. OpenNode is another one. There's a bunch of these services. So if, if you're building something, right, in the mining space or in the, in the kind of Strike area, um, definitely let me know because I might be interested in, in investing.
1: Give our audience a handoff to you and uh, where people can engage with your thoughts and ideas.
0: Just at Mike Alford at Twitter.
1: Very cool. Which spot are you most excited about hitting on this road trip?
0: Honestly, I'm just excited to get out into the middle of the country and sit, you know, on uh, in a steakhouse somewhere, on a, in a, at the bar and talk to the locals and say, "Hey, um, what do you guys like to do here?" Right? I want to hear corn stories and cow tipping, and right? I want to hear about you know stuff people people actually are doing in the in the community. So I'm just excited to get out there. Right. Like, I'll just say Oklahoma City just because I've never been there. It sounds, seems like a cool place.
2: Very cool. Mike, thank you for your time, man. Thank you guys. Really appreciate it.
1: Thanks so much for listening into the show. If you enjoyed this discussion, be sure to like or subscribe on whatever app you're using for podcasts or on YouTube. And if you have an extra minute, go ahead and leave us a review. We are also active on Twitter at Blue underscore Collar BTC. And our email address is bluecollarbitcoinpodcast at gmail.com. We invite questions, comments, or inquiries of any kind. We look forward to you joining us again on the BCB podcast. I'm not going to be